Existential, a podcast aimed at reminding you that it's okay to be human. We listen to human stories and human experiences, and we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Welcome, folks. Welcome to uh, this episode of Existential. I'm really excited to have all of you here, especially those of you who are part of the Patreon community. I am so appreciative of you and all of you who have been a part of this journey uh, that we've been on for a bunch of episodes now. So thank you all for being a part of this. Today, I'm really excited to have our, our next guest. It's Dr. Dr. Janice Gassamasari is with us. She is an author, a DEI professional. In fact, I had a friend of mine, not knowing that that she was going to be on the podcast, send me like a, a LinkedIn message saying, "You like you need to listen to this woman's stuff because she's amazing. <laughs> she's amazing." So, oh wow, uh, that's so awesome! Yes. So, Dr. Janice is also a, a speaker. You've done, done TED talks. So, thank you so much for being on Existential today. We're really excited to hear from you. Thank you so much. It's great to speak with you. I know we've been connected online for a little while, but thank you so much for sharing your platform with me. I'm really excited to chat with you. Yeah, yeah. So you so you wrote a book called um, The Pink Elephant. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. So, so, for, I, mm-hmm. so for anybody who hasn't read it or like know about it, could you just sort of tell us like what that book is about and, and all of the all the stuff we can get from it? Yeah, sure. So um, actually like two and a half years ago, so right when the pandemic hit, I decided to write a book because my business was slow. So I have a DEI consultancy and I work with companies. And right when the pandemic hit, um, I was just teaching full time at the university I'm at and business completely stopped with my consulting. So I was like, I've always wanted to write a book. Writing is my first love. And I thought now is the time. Um, So I actually came out with my first book, which was called Dirty Diversity, and Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be like an introductory, like DEI 101. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that, like, so after the murder of George Floyd, I realized that there needed to be a resource for folks who wanted to um, promote and really push forward anti-racism and anti-oppression in their workplaces. So the Pink Elephant, um, the name came about because I've written um, about the Pink Elephant in some of my articles. I've talked about how race is the Pink Elephant in the room that everybody sees, right? So imagine you're sitting in a room and a hot pink elephant walks into the room. (laughs) How can you ignore it, right? It's like the thing that everybody sees, but they pretend not to see. Absolutely. Right? So I think the purpose was really like the more we talk about the pink elephant in the room and understand how systems have been created to uh, marginalize certain people, um, the better we'll be able to create systemic shifts in the workplace. So the book really focuses on, I get into a little bit of the history. Um, To be honest with you, Corey, I wasn't, I've never been a history person. Mm -hmm. Social studies and history wasn't my favorite subject. It it was probably my (laughs) least favorite in school, but I realized in the work that I do that it's impossible to be in this space without understanding how history has repeated itself and continues to repeat itself. So some of the book I dive into like historical events that have happened within the U S and how those have impacted uh, marginalized communities. And then I talk about like 
creating systemic changes in our workplaces. Hmm. So, okay, I, I love the description of a hot pink elephant as the the issue when you're talking about race, especially here in America. And you you used you know terminology that that folks listening to this podcast would have heard bunch of the times when, around systemic issues. And in your work with diversity, equity, and inclusion and anti-racism education with corporations, do you find that they recognize that race is a hot pink elephant or, or do they, are, are they, or do they treat it like more of a, I don't know, like a, a camouflaged mouse that's <laughs> in the room that, you know, like, cause I, I don't know if everyone recognizes systemic issues the same way that maybe people of color do. I find that they don't like, they know that the hot pink elephant is there, but they want to pretend that it's not. They want to pretend mm-hmm. that they don't see it because they feel like pointing it out and bringing it up is divisive. Right. So pre pre George Floyd, I think of my work in like pre George Floyd and post George Floyd. So pre George Floyd, um, when I would go into companies, they would ask me specifically not to talk about white supremacy or white privilege or anything that would like anger their mostly white workplace. Right. So it was like they saw and they recognized that these were issues, but they wanted to push them under the rug because of this this false belief that bringing up a problem or discussing a problem will amplify it or will make people uncomfortable. So I think that there's still post George Floyd, I still see um, the excitement around DEI has started to wane for sure. And there isn't as much interest. Um, Companies aren't doing workshops as much. They aren't, they're deprioritizing this work. And I'm a little scared and a little nervous about the recession that is happening in the U.S. and abroad um, because with with companies doing mass layoffs, I think they're looking for ways to cut costs. And DEI usually gets goes to the bottom of the priority list. Mm-hmm. But what I'm excited and invigorated by is that employees and consumers are no longer willing to put up with racist companies and oppressive companies. And so people are very outspoken and have realized the power of social media to create changes. So when we encounter these companies, I think Wells Fargo was one that was in the news recently because they do um, kind of like, um, what is it called? In the NFL, they have the Rooney rule where Mm -hmm. you have to interview the black coaches. You don't necessarily have to hire them. So Wells Fargo was doing the same where they would um, interview black people Um, and they weren't necessarily hiring them. They were just interviewing them to say that they interviewed them, but they were ending up hiring white people instead. And I think, you know, somebody exposed them. And so it, you know, I I saw it on different places. And so I'm invigorated by the fact that people are not standing for injustice and oppression within their companies. And people don't want to, especially millennials and Gen Z, they don't want to buy from companies that are oppressive and that mistreat their employees and that um, are harmful. So I do think that even though companies want to deprioritize these things, if they want to be sustainable, 
in the future, they have to put an emphasis and a focus on these things. Yeah, I've, I've heard that, right? And then there's a part of me that, like, um, really deeply wants to believe it. Like, I've seen the, the, the numbers and the data that suggest that, like, you know, this newer generation will leave a company that they don't feel is diverse, that, um, you know, that, like you, like you mentioned, that this upcoming generation of consumers aren't interested in consuming products from people that they believe um, are, you know, cooperating with oppression and, and empire in those ways. But for some reason, it seems like, to me, the decision makers in this country are still not convinced that they have to make real change. Like, they feel, it seems to me like they feel like they can check a box. They can um, appear to be doing the right things. And we saw this with, you know, like you, you mentioned, post-George Floyd. Like, immediately post-George Floyd, everybody was an anti-racist. <laughs> it was like, it was so, yeah. it was so yeah. in vogue to be like doing the black square and, and black mm-hmm. lives matter and go to, to protest. And then all of that, like, as you mentioned, it seems to die down. And it's like, I, I wonder what is the message? What is the, the, the thing in your opinion, you know, if you could solve thousands of years of right. behavior, right? What, what is it that you think modern day is the thing that, that, that moves the needle the most when it comes to advancing forward for social change? Um, that's a great question, Corey. I think um, when companies realize that being oppressive and racist is hurting their bottom line, right, or is going to hurt their bottom line. Um, the, so the name of my consultancy is BWG Business Solutions. And the reason I named it that in 2018 was built around this idea that, so BWG stands for black, white, green. And so I always have the saying that I used to say, which is diversity is not about black or white, but green. And mm-hmm. the reason I said that is because I know that I can't rely on company leadership's um, their desire to do the right thing, right? Sometimes we hear um, DEI practitioners saying it's the right thing to do to treat people well. Unfortunately, and maybe this is pessimistic to say, I just don't, um, I don't think we can put money on or we can bank on people's (laughs) desire to do the right thing because white people feel like these issues don't impact them, right? I think white Mm -hmm. supremacy as a system harms us all, but white Mm -hmm. people don't see it that way. And so I'm not banking on their desire to do the right thing, right? And Mm -hmm. so I think that what gets them to understand that this is a problem is when they realize that not prioritizing these things affects their bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody wants the bad press that a Starbucks, for example, Starbucks in 2018 got yeah. all of this bad press, but they're a billion dollar or multi-million dollar company. They can afford to bounce back, right? Mm-hmm. But what about the small coffee shop within the local coffee shop that mistreats black, you know, black customers? They can't bounce back from that, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that when companies realize that this is going to affect your bottom line. Um, that's when I've seen clients really, really scared about negative comments on social media, being dragged on social media. A lot of the clients I've worked with, I've worked with some big companies, but mm-hmm. I noticed that this fear is particularly with the midsize and smaller companies and the startups, right? And I think when company leaders realize that not prioritizing these things will impact their 
revenue, that's when that to me is what really creates the systemic shifts, right? Mm. And I think that for the larger companies, it's harder, right? For and I'm I'm gonna name some companies that I've actually worked with for like the Amazons, right? I haven't mm. worked with Meta or Facebook, but for like those caliber of companies, I think it's much more difficult for us to see systemic changes because one person, a diversity manager or a chief diversity officer is not going to change an entire environment or culture. Mm -hmm. I just don't believe that. Right. Mm -hmm. So I feel like for those larger companies, it's harder to make an impact um, because there's just so many people. Right. And so I, I think when companies realize that not being inclusive not creating that sense of belonging, not prioritizing marginalized employees is going to hurt them. That's when they really put money into and resources into these sorts of things. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, it, you're, I, I, I love what you're saying right now because I have for some time in the DEI work that I've done um, been trying to communicate, and I don't think very effectively, that DEI work is soul work. And it's it is it's not necessarily a, a data or um, you know kind of a, you know measurable thing. It is, but it doesn't start there. And I think a lot of people and a lot of companies start with like, what can we measure? What can we like? How do how do we get to this data point? Um, instead of actually going, there's some change in me in the way I view power in the way my relationship to power and who I view has power that has to shift and has to change. And to your point about some of these larger companies, I mean, or if you even look at like society at large, you know, legislation doesn't change the fact that people are prone and inclined to protect their own self-interest and white supremacy self-interest is white supremacy, which like you said, harms all of us. So as an, obviously as a most recent example that we look back to is we just, we just had Juneteenth not too long ago, which is to remember that slaves, our enslaved ancestors were liberated two years prior to people finding out in Texas. So legislation happened. And then two years later, because of the fact that the soul work wasn't done, we still had people that were enslaved. And I think that like, it's such a powerful point you bring up when you talk, when you talk about like a DEI department or a chief diversity officer and the amount of influence or power that they actually have. Right. So I guess my question to you would be, what does a person who's not the DEI director, who's not a diversity, equity and inclusion leader at their job or in their community, what role could they actually play in like sort of a regular, ordinary, day-to-day -day way of um, of using their influence to bring change. Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I would, um, I always say, I think finding other folks in the workplace that are aligned with you as well, right? Who are the freedom fighters and the mm -hmm. justice seekers in your workplace, and how can you come together with them? Because I do believe that there's strength in numbers. Um, and you're able to um, to gain, you're more powerful when you have multiple people, when you come together, right, as a conglomerate. And I think that companies can't, have no choice but to listen to you when it's a group of employees versus one. So I would say first finding the folks who um, are aligned with you and are, are also seeking equity and justice, and that might be through 
an employee resource group if your workplace has those. It could be just through talking with people um, that you work with and seeing. It could be finding your group of people through like cultural celebrations that happen at your workplace, right? I spoke recently at an ERG. It was like the Hispanic and the Black ERG partnered and did an event. So, you know, that would be a great place to come together and find folks who may be aligned with, you know, what you believe. But I think coming together, finding those people, and then figuring out what it is that you want to see, like, what do you want to change in the workplace, Mm -hmm. right? Do you feel like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of microaggressions that are taking place? Do you feel like there is a lack of, for, for a lot of Black employees, I think, they feel like there is a lack of advancement opportunities in their workplace. So is it, what, what do you want, right? What will make you feel supported? Is it getting a mentor? Is it getting additional training? And I think making your sort of list of demands for your organization. And I've seen people that I've been acquainted with, um, like recommending me or recommending other DEI consultants recommending someone like you to come into their workplace to educate their leaders and to educate their their workplace. So I think that there's a lot of ways that you can um, impact the conversation. And after you've done that, right, you've spoken with leadership, you've found other people that feel the same way as you, you've suggested things. If things still aren't changing, unfortunately, I think one of the best ways to impact change is by leaving that environment, Mm -hmm. right? Because I think that um, that's sometimes, unfortunately, when leadership starts to pay attention is when people start leaving. And I, I really think that you have to exhaust all of your options before doing that, because I do recognize that it's easy to say, just get up and leave. But for right. everyone that, you know, that's not a feasible option. If you have a family, you have mouths to feed, you can't just get up and go. Right. So I think first finding the people that feel the same way as you and just coming together with them and saying, what will make us feel supported in this workplace? And how can we push? How can we push? I don't want to call it an agenda, but how can we push that forward? And how can we communicate our needs with leadership and actually have them take that into consideration and and listen to what it is that we need? So I think first finding those folks is important. Um, And then, you know, I think ERGs are really powerful in those resource groups because just being able to have a safe space to to share with people that are experiencing similar things as you, I think, is healing in a way. Um, So finding those safe spaces, what do those safe spaces look like? And if they, they don't exist in your workplace, not being afraid to spearhead them or to create them. Hmm. Uh, The the healing part is like, when you said that, I, I just kind of like feel like I just sat down in that for a second because I, I do think again to, to the, the idea of we're talking about human beings mm-hmm. and and their ability to feel like seen and supported and um, like they can preserve the dignity of who they are when they are at work, which is unfortunately, in my opinion, where we spend most of our time. Um, like that we're talking about people and healing is something that I don't know. Uh, I don't know that a lot of space is made for that. Did you, did you find around George Floyd and I guess post George Floyd that companies are offering space for people who are affected by things that happen in the news or, you know, something we'll get into in a moment. Some of the, you know, some of the more recent 
outrageous um, institutional rulings that have happened in our country. Are, are companies creating space for people to heal? That's such a great question, Corey. I don't think that they are. Um, I think there is this urgency to move past the pain without mm -hmm. recognizing or acknowledging the pain that we have experienced in the past and we're currently still experiencing. Um, a lot of clients that I work with don't recognize that repairing harm takes time mm -hmm. and rebuilding trust takes time. And when you've harmed a person consistently over years, right, um, and, and they've been harmed by other organizations, they are going to be fearful and there's going to be healing that needs to take place. I don't think enough resources are poured into um, healing and asking what racial healing looks like and what, what ways can we support our employees who are going through these consistent sorts of acts of trauma, you know, and, and there's not even thought put into the effect that consistent, consistently, excuse me, seeing black people um, dying can have on a person, right? I think it's called mm -hmm. racial mega threats. What effect does that have? If I'm a black man and I'm constantly seeing images of black men being murdered by police officers or being murdered, period, what effect does that have on me? Right. Mm -hmm. And so I just was thinking about the grocery store workers the other day. Man. Right. I was like, how would you feel as a black person working inside? Because it's interesting. Right. The area where I live. One thing I always notice is that the black people, there's never any black people inside the Whole Foods. The only black people I ever see are the ones that work there. Mm -hmm. um, just an observation that I noticed. <laughs> and so I was just thinking, like, what must they feel like? Right. How did they feel? What, what uh, you know, what has Whole Foods or what have any of these companies, grocery stores done to, to make them? Because if I'm a customer and I'm like, oh, I don't want to go into this grocery store anymore. I'm going to just mm. order my groceries. What must they feel like as employees? Mm. So I, I don't think that there's enough thought that's put into it. I think that's such a great question because not enough emphasis is put on how to support the healing of, of marginalized employees. Yeah, I mean, and I, I feel like a lot of what we're describing, and it's, it's to me, it's it's the most baffling part of all of this, and and one of the things that I find myself the most befuddled by is, it's it's not even so much white supremacy and patriarchy, but it's it's there, it's the baby they created, which is capitalism, that like we all have to bow our knee to. So so no matter if you're trying to deconstruct. Um, patriarchy, if you're trying to decolonize from white supremacy, you still are doing so underneath the system that they created, which is this capitalist system that is, to your point earlier about the bottom line. And one of the struggles for people like myself is, is what to do with altruism, right? Is when you expect that people are going to do the right thing, as you mentioned before, because it's the right thing and you keep running into, no, people aren't. It doesn't matter the industry, whether it's church whether it is is the U.S. government, whether it's corporations, they're not going to do the right thing because it's the right thing. They're going to do the right thing because it serves the bottom line, because it uh, helps them to continue to produce, which I think is what drives people not to ask the question, how are marginalized people, how are women affected by some of the things that we're all talking about on social media? We all know what's going on. How are they affected? So 
as an example, this past Sunday and this upcoming Sunday, and I, this is where I go into my church background, my, my Christian tradition background, there are going to be women across this country and have been women across this country who went to church after the Supreme Court decided that they were going to um, take away, they were going to take away the federal mandate of Roe v. Wade and states went and said, no more abortions, no more autonomy over your body, no more agency over your body in certain states. And it's like you're sitting in a pew or you're at work and you're expected to just continue as normal, despite the fact that you're taking all of these hits from society. Like, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you um, on my on, on this this platform to speak to this whole Roe v. Wade, what I'd call a catastrophe, and how that's affected you and your work and 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 how you you know how what you would encourage any woman to do moving forward, given the fact that again we don't live in a country that has a lot of sensitivity to what you might be going through. Yeah, no, that's a really great question, and I'm actually really curious, but you might not want to get into it. Um, I, but I, I'm I always, want to get into everything. So, I'm so. always very curious because I'm not a Christian, mm. so I am very interested in how a black how black Christians feel because there's been so much conversation about why people feel like the Supreme court made this decision. I know we've all been seeing on Instagram, like there's this clip of Jane Elliott talking about how um, in the eighties, there was an author who I think he was an an advisor to Ronald Reagan Mm. and how he was talking about the birth rate of white people. Right. And we, we all know that, by demographers have predicted by 2045 or 2050, um, America will be majority Mm non-white. And, you know, we see this browning of America, right? And so I think that that scares a lot of white people. And I'm really fascinated to listen to and hear the perspectives of black Christians, because I feel like, you know, part of you as a black person wants to say, this is gonna impact black women, right? Because Mm -hmm. we know that in the U.S. we have an abysmal black maternal mortality rate. Black women are more, you know, prone to experiencing harm at the hands of our medical system. And so as a black woman or a black person, you might think about that. But then as a Christian, I know that a lot of Christians feel like abortion is wrong, right? And Mm -hmm. so I I just am really fascinated by that. So I would love to hear your perspective. (laughs) But (laughs) yeah, for sure. I I don't I don't have a problem giving it. I mean, I I like I I might actually go live and talk about this at some point today because, uh, you know, I I, um, since you ask and uh, and, um, I hang on to Christianity by the smallest of threads (laughs) because of the way that it's the way that it's practiced in the United States. In fact, when this, when this all came out, my youngest daughter was like, that's, that was, this was the last straw for her. She was like, I'm done because I I can't, I don't want to associate with people who are causing this much harm to other people. And, and and she actually persuaded me because I'm like, I'm making all these cases like, well, you know, like, um, you know, just because there's some folks that don't behave or don't believe or don't practice their faith in a way that's helpful doesn't mean we should abandon it altogether. But she said, yeah, but what if they're, you know, if you were a part of a corporation that was doing harm to people, I imagine you'd quit. And I'm like, you know what, you're right. <laughs> I probably would. So mm-hmm. I, I think that like, you know, for me, I think that Christianity in the United States has so 
been hijacked by American white nationalism that mm-hmm. we can no longer really recognize what it actually means to practice Christianity. So like for me, any, any, anything that takes away agency from human beings is not inherently a Christian practice in my opinion. Um, and for all of the folks, and I also understand people, if, if you are genuinely convinced, as I think some folks have done, convincing people to believe that this whole conversation is about uh, bloodthirsty, uh, violent, liberal people trying to yank babies out of the womb, if you believe that that's what's going on, of course you have some moral obligation to combat that, but that's we, you and I both know that's not what's going on. And so to me, like, the whole conversation comes down to some misunderstanding of what um, the Bible says and also some, you know, people with agendas that are capitalizing on um, people's propensity to not actually really do a lot of deep study of the Bible. Like, people throw around this one scripture that before I knew you in the womb, you know, uh, before I formed you in the womb, I'm sorry, I knew you. Well, that's a, before is a big-ass word. <laughs> like that's, mm-hmm. That is a huge word which goes to a lot of things and has a lot of implications for things that nobody wants to talk about. So, man, I could talk about that forever. So (laughs) I just like, it's, it's a frustrating thing for me. Um, It's something that I feel is important to be an advocate about, um, especially given what you just said about the mortality rate of black women. Um, You know, I I think taking away uh, the ability to save the lives of black women um, doesn't seem like, something that is lost on white supremacist leaders in this country. Like what, what history do we have in America that says, Oh no, white folks are not going to just, the white, white folks aren't going to try to do things to harm the black community. Like what, like what evidence do we have to, to trust that things that happen are not directly targeting black folks? So that, that would be where I stand on it and why it's, it's incredibly frustrating and angering when I see Chris, Christians celebrating this, it, it just like, you know, it, it, don't, don't get, Dr. J, don't gas me today. Cause not. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's really interesting. And I, I love hearing the religious perspectives because I heard a round table with a Jewish woman and a Muslim man, and they were saying in their religions, right? Especially Islam is really vilified in the U S and we make it seem like, um, Muslims are so backwards in yeah, the way exactly. that they treat women and this and that. And they, so it was refreshing to see, you know, to hear their perspective and to see like, it's actually not, you know, it's, it's in every religion you have fanaticism. Mm -hmm. And I think that the fanatics give the other people who practice a religion, a bad name. And so Mm -hmm. I I do think that it's funny that we say that this country is, there's a separation of church and state when there actually is not. Right. And I, so I think that it's really, really, I imagine it's scary to live in one of these states where abortion will be banned. I personally don't think that I would ever live in any of these states just because, you know, my parents live in um, Atlanta and I've considered like my husband and I have considered whether we would want to move there, but I'm just like, I couldn't do Georgia right outside of Atlanta. You see a lot of like black people doing a lot of amazing things, but outside of that, like, I'm not really, you know, just a fan of how the lawmakers run that state. So I don't want to live in those states. But I think um, we've seen a lot of companies um, making statements about how they'll fund 
women or they'll allow, and I'm, I'm trying to also be mindful, Corey, of my language, because I know that it's not just women who get abortions, trans yeah. people. Um, so I, I've been trying to just say people instead of women, but sometimes yeah. I revert back. But um, we've seen a lot of companies saying, oh, we'll donate $4,000 or however much to help women travel with their travel expenses um, if they do need to get an abortion. But I think that is, um, that's a good idea, but we also have to think about the processes that we we will put in place to make it as easeful as possible, right? Because it's not just how will women have to request that money and that funding. And as someone who gets an abortion, I imagine that you don't want to out yourself, right? You don't want right. to tell everybody right. that you work with, hey, I'm going to get this abortion. Right. Who is has access to the records? What is a process that will have to be put in place so that someone can request that money and that funding, right? So there's all of these things that you have to think about. Is it open to every employee? Is it open to only certain, you know, employees with certain, are there um, janitorial staff, for example, mm. that this policy would also be open to? So there's a lot of, it sounds nice. The statements sound cute. It's like, oh, wow, this place is giving $4,000. But it's like, to me, I just think about like the process for somebody who's in a toxic workplace, right? You need, let's say you need or you're seeking an abortion, but you're in a toxic workplace, you don't trust your managers, you don't trust management, what do you do in that situation? So I would like to see a more comprehensive plan for companies that have pledged to support the people in their workplace that do need abortions. Is that funding also going to be open to um, if I am a... Uh, a partner of somebody who's getting an abortion mm. and is that funding open to me as well like so there's all of these things that I'm like wondering and I, I know that it's we you know the news just broke it hasn't even been a week right so I know that there hasn't been enough time to really think it think it through but I encourage companies to think about all of these nuances yeah. that maybe haven't been considered well, and also to think about, I, I was talking with a, a black C-suite executive, I think just yesterday, about the struggles that they have getting people to come to their red state uh, and how even harder it's going to be moving forward now that this ruling has come out that these states have the power to ban abortion. So now you have um, people um, who would reconsider moving to those states for work even. You could have an incredible job offer that now companies have to think about, well, we do we have to start offering more remote opportunities for people so that they can so they don't have to come and live under the political realities that we're now facing. And this is that I mean that's to me, when you're talking about inclusion, which is to me to me my fit my favorite of the D E and I is the inclusion, is like these are the conversations that you have to have. These are the conversations that I think are valuable because now you're talking about how do we create an environment where everyone can be included. And Dr. J, I love that you told me, are you Dr. J too? Because now every time I say it, I, all I can think of is Julius Irvin. But like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, like how, you know, how do these, how do companies have like fully inclusive conversations? What, what does it mean, right, to have a company be safe for liberals and conservatives at the same time? To, with with the kind of polarizing divide that seems to continue uh, in our country. 
That's such a great question. And something I didn't consider, Corey, is um, like working with companies in these conservative states. Because I would never, I don't like to say never, but I don't see myself in the near future living in Texas. I was born in Texas, but I could never live there. I, yeah, I don't we see myself the same ever. We got, family. we got family there, and it's like, ah, oh, man, I love y'all. Yeah. Texas, Texas and Florida. I'm, like, trying to figure out which one is <laughs> which one is worse, right? They're competing in my mind. And we used to want to move to, like, Miami because it's nice weather, but mm-hmm. now I'm just like, mm. all of the things y'all have going on, I, I just yeah, don't, man. you know. So but, so, but that's something really interesting that I didn't consider is, how will people push back against, and I foresee it being where some people just will refuse to, you know, go to these states or um, participate in things related. I, I'm thinking about, um, I'm thinking about the push against the voter suppression that's taking place in Georgia and yeah. how I believe there was a major, it was a major league baseball who, Mm-hmm. who moved um, some event that was happening yeah, in Georgia it. because mm-hmm. of, yeah, because of all of the voter suppression that's taking place. And I love that. I think taking a stand in that way is what's really going to create change, right? Because mm-hmm. I think um, I, like, we have to think about what powers, if at all, we have as citizens. Um, and it's really frightening that, that a nine people can make a decision that impacts over 300 million people in this country, right? And the fact that it's it's just six of them are very conservative, thinking about all of the protections and rights that will be undone is kind of scary, Corey. And honestly, I've just been thinking about like, whether I I said this on my podcast, I recorded it yesterday and I was saying, does this work require me to be in the U.S. to do it? Same. Because I'm just like, is this really? And my husband's like, well, this is the land of opportunity, which is true. But I don't know. I'm starting to just think this country, our lack of openness to talk about our past, I think is not facilitating healing. Right. Yeah. We 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 want to forget that all of the horrors that have happened in this country have happened. And I think that like when you're in a any sort of relationship, when there's harm that's been caused and you don't acknowledge it or recognize it, I don't think that any healing can take place. Right. And how and how do you expect the harmed to move forward in trust when you're not even willing to talk about the thing you did? So exactly. imagine imagine you got a partner who cheated on you. And, you know, like they stepped outside of the arrangement of your partnership and did something they knew was outside of the arrangement. And they maybe say sorry, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I'm kind of half ass sorry and then expect to just move forward and not have any conversation about what happened and constantly look at you like, you know, what's wrong with you? Why are you still living in the past? Why mm-hmm. don't you trust me? Why is it every time I leave the house that you're wondering where I'm going? Well, because we have never addressed the harm. And so when we, as especially us as black folks, when we show a distrust for white people that we don't know, and people try to tell us it's because we're racist, that to me is just, it's, it's the most, it is the most uh, insensitive and re-traumatizing attitude. And that's what the United States has continued to present us, is this re-traumatizing mm-hmm. attitude. Like, you have no reason to, to have trauma. You weren't enslaved and 
I didn't own slaves. Like, yeah, but we, you're not even willing to talk about what happened and the mm-hmm. effect it has on us for generations to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's like, I, I think about my mom and I were talking about Germany, right? Cause so for, for Juneteenth weekend, um, my parents are in Atlanta and my mom and I, I wanted to drive with her to, um, this part of Georgia called St. Simmons Island. So mm-hmm. my mom and I drove five hours outside of Atlanta to this Island where, um, it's an area called, um, Dunbar Creek. And it was a site where um, 75 enslaved Igbo Nigerians were taken um, in the 1800s, and they capsized the boat because they they would rather drown than be enslaved. Mm -hmm. And I took my mom there, and, you know, we took videos and we took pictures. And my mom was astonished because it's like a... Um, it's like a resort town, like a vacation town. It's mostly white people there. They come there to fish and golf and like have fun and people bring their families there. And there's no like acknowledgement of the history. Right. And I spoke with a few black people there. One of our waitresses was a black woman and she was telling us she's like Gullah Geechee. And I was like, Oh, so you must know about Igbo landing. She's like, no, what's that? And I explained it to her. She's like, I've, I'm from St. Simmons Island. I've lived here my whole life. I never knew that. I never heard of that, right? And my mom was just, like, commenting about how in Germany, you know, they have statues of, like, they have an acknowledgement of the Holocaust and what happened, and they're very adamant about, like, I think it's something that they acknowledge was a horrible act, and, you know, we know that they pay reparations or they pay, um, I forget the, the name of what it is, but they pay money to... Um, Holocaust victims, right? And here we have no acknowledgement because it's it's almost like you cheat on your partner and you're like, okay, can we just get past this, right? Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I just want us to to get to move to a point where we're not talking about this anymore. And it's like you can't heal until you really reckon with what happened, right? Just like when things have happened to you, traumatic things have happened to you as a child, you can like pretend that those didn't happen. But at some point when you become an adult, those things will sort of like reemerge, right? Whether it's in your relationship or in your friendships or in your life, those things will come, come up again, right? And you have to acknowledge them, heal from them, talk about what happened. And I don't see that happening in this country. And I actually see more of an effort to silence these conversations where it's like, I grew up in Virginia and I literally did not know, like I knew about Williamsburg and all of that. I didn't know that literally 30 minutes from where I grew up was the first place that they brought enslaved people, enslaved Africans in the U S like I grew up in, right. I lived an hour and a half away from the capital of the Confederacy. I, I went to school in Richmond and I did not know that Richmond, Virginia was the capital of the Confederacy. I graduated high school in Norfolk, Virginia, and did not know that in Hampton, Virginia, the port in Hampton, Virginia was where they brought enslaved Africans. They did not teach us this. Right. So it's like, it's scary that there's more, there's a, such a concerted effort to ban books and to not teach the history and to not say certain things. And I just see us backstepping as a country. Um, so I don't know what things will be like in five or 10 or 20 years. I'm like scared for my future children. <laughs> yeah, it is scary, man. I mean, I, I've, you know, we've got three adult children 
Well, my 16-year-old might as well be an adult. She's been there since she's 12. <laughs> but, like, I, I'm, you know, when you mentioned um, what they do in Germany, one of the things that, that I think keeps uh, white supremacy fastened tightly to the United States is our mythology. And one of the, the one of the, the part of mythology is establishing an uh, a antagonist. You establish an, an awful evil person or evil institution or evil country that is is they're the ones that are so awful and we're the good guys. And what one of the things that happened is Hitler's become that for us. Hitler has become this like you know, you can't you can't mention Hitler's name, or it's like he's he's just such an awful person. And obviously, the, the things that Hitler did was there were atrocities. But what's fascinating about American mythology is we don't. You have to really dig deep to to find that Hitler and Germany looked to the United States and the way that the United States was treating their enslaved African population, if you even call it that, because the, the enslaved Africans are property. Hitler and them looked to the United States to get a playbook for how to treat the Jewish people that they put through the Holocaust. And then after that, Germany, as to your point earlier, went and did reparations. The United States <laughs> was the example and then worse than how Germany treated the, folk, the generations following. But yet, like, whenever Hitler comes up, it's like, oh, we're not that we're not those people. We don't behave that way. We, we're, we're better than that. And it's like, you're not. And mm-hmm. the only reason you think you are is because you know more mythology about America than you know actual history. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think that America is very sort of, it's like you can't speak badly about America. I was, I was doing a listening session after Buffalo happened there was a company that reached out to me and said, can you facilitate this conversation? Because one of the customers um, for this company um, was one of the people that ended up getting killed in Buffalo, right? So they have a, a location that's in Buffalo and one of their customers happened to be in the grocery store that day. And so during the listening session, there was somebody who commented and said, yeah, but America's the like the best country to live in or one of the best countries to live in, right? And I was really that that comment really infuriated me because it mm. felt like invalidating to the yeah. black experience. Like yeah. you can acknowledge that and there was a therapist that was facilitating the conversation with me and she stated it so perfectly and she said two things can be true at the same time. Yeah. This can be a great country for certain reasons. But as Americans, we also reserve the right to critique this country and point out inequities and injustice. And that doesn't make that doesn't mean I'm wrong. Right. I think it was James Baldwin who said, I love America so much so that I reserve the right like to critique her whenever she needs critiquing. Right. And I know I'm butchering his quote, but I, I think along those same lines, like in order for this country to get better, we have to be constantly critiquing and criticizing and pointing out the ways that can, people continue to be oppressed here. So I, I, I just think like it's our lack of acknowledgement is what I think makes the problem continue, right? We think that by acknowledging and recognizing and um, repairing the harm that we're going to make it worse. But I think that 
by ignoring it, it's just growing and growing and growing and growing. Yeah, man. Well, I, I'm going to let you go. And before, but before I do, I just want to say um, a, a huge thank you for number one, coming on the podcast, but actually not number one. I want to say thank you for coming on the podcast, but I, I really want to say um, just to you uh, to fill your tank. If you know, just to fill your tank, you as a doctor, as a, a contributing writer to Forbes magazine, that's doing TED Talks, is writing books, and and all the and your consulting and everything that you're doing is it's just so remarkable. Um, you're like a real life superhero to me, and, and I really appreciate Thank you so much. I appreciate everything you're doing, and I know that like you know, was, I'm going to butcher a quote too. I know Malcolm X said mm -hmm. that the most disrespected person in America is a black woman. And I know being a black woman is not easy. Um, and for you to be doing what you're doing and have accomplished what you've accomplished, to me, to do that requires such internal power of the soul um, that is divine and sacred. And I hope that you, um, and I just, that you soak that up and that you um, feel like the empowerment that you are and that you offer it to all of us. So thank you so much for, for everything you're doing. It's, it's amazing. Thank you so much, Corey. I really, really appreciate that. And thank you so much for sharing your platform with me. And I definitely look forward to us collaborating again in the future. Absolutely. I'd love it. Well, folks, that was uh, Dr. Janice Gasson Assure, and I am so grateful for all of you who listened. Thank you for um, those of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast, and thank you for uh, being a part of us contending for a better world, one conversation at a time. Thank you.